Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guest in today's episode is Marissa Pilla, who's been terrific on TV covering the NWSL, the U.S. Women's National Team, and the Philadelphia Union. Before we get going, you can sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including 14 magazine-style stories in our first four months, and lots of free posts as well. That's grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. In segment one, Chris Whittingham and I will break down the news in the soccer world. We'll have Marissa Pilla in segment two, but let's bring in Witty. How are you, my man? Doing all right, Grant. I was bemoaning the FA Cup weekend on Thursday's pod, and then I swear to you I must have watched a portion of at least 16 matches, so I am a giant fraud. That's impressive. I did not, but you're <laughs> capable of doing that because of... The, the the screen being divided into four on ESPN Plus, correct? Yes, yes. The On the Apple TV ESPN app, you can quad box and put four games on at the same time. And so if there's a time to do that, I mean, honestly, for me, like most of the football in the weekend took place on ESPN Plus. When you look at, you know, like Barcelona dropped points again, you had all the FA Cup games. You know, you had Ricardo Pepe's debut, which you get to with Augsburg. There was a really good Dortmund game against, uh, who was it, Mönchengladbach? Yeah, Frankfurt. Yeah. They came back no, and, yeah, and beat Frankfurt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that, that was a really good game. So, yeah, there was a lot of good stuff on ESPN+. Plus. So, I just kind of had that quad box on the entire day on Saturday. And it was actually pretty fun. Like, the FA Cup action for me was pretty fun. I watched most of it. That's good. We'll get into some more detail on FA Cup later on here, but let's start with Ricardo Pepe. You mentioned it, made his debut with Augsburg in a 3-1 to loss to Hoffenheim. Chris Richards on the field for Hoffenheim. And I watched actually all of this game. It was maybe, I don't know if people were expecting Pepe might start. Didn't start, but did come on and have 30 minutes and had some good moments I thought uh, a couple of moments when his teammates, I thought could have done a slightly better job of spotting him, but came on with a lot of energy. And, and this was a one goal game until late when Hoffenheim uh, got the third. I always love it when Derek Ray does games. Derek is awesome and <laughs> pronounces everything correctly, but knows his stuff and, you know, just a sense of occasion whenever Derek Ray does a game. So that was, that was good. Did you have any thoughts on Pepe's debut? Yeah, for me, the thing that kind of like stuck out, obviously it's a team that's a point above the relegation zone in Germany, and at times they very much look that part. Uh, the, the one thing that I'll be curious is it's you know a very typical German system, the way that they play. Like There were times where the field was literally divided up into two teams. It was the five that were in a line ready to attack and the five that were in a line ready to defend, and they were just going back and forth in transition. It was very much in the Ranić mold of, of how a lot of German teams play and so I'm really curious how Ricardo Pepe not only fits into that system but then kind of develops from within it because that's not really the system that Greg Berhalter employs nor the way that they necessarily want to play so Germany is very often touted as a place where players go to develop they're given chances to play as young kids but I almost wonder if that particular way of playing might stunt their growth in other areas and the things that they're meant to be developing I think the one thing that you'll definitely see him improve on is the kinds of runs that he's making to get in behind defenders, making runs across the penalty area to meet, to, to meet crosses. So I think that there are definitely areas in which he will improve, but you know, you would like to see him score, you would like to see them play better, but 
this is not a team. I, th- I think they've won one away match all year, and so I would imagine that we'll see probably more of him and better of him once Augsburg returns to home games. And he's certainly going to get playing time. Um, you know, I tweeted at one point just reminding myself that Augsburg is in a similar place in the standings to where FC Dallas was for most of last season. And some of the usual bad faith people on Twitter took that uh, as me criticizing Pepe's move, which I'm not at all. I'm, I'm thrilled for his move. But my point was that he's on a team that is toward the bottom of the league. If he had signed with Wolfsburg, which is where we were expecting him to go for a while and had actually gotten playing time. Now, forget for a second that Wolfsburg is in a really bad run right now. They're a Champions League team this this season. And so his teammates would have been better than the ones he has at Augsburg. Now, that said, Ricardo Pepe didn't have great teammates this season at Dallas and still scored a lot of goals. So he potentially could do that at Augsburg. I, Personally, if he was going to get playing time at Wolfsburg, I kind of wish he had been there uh, just because I, I think that's a better team in general, usually. But like, whenever you tweet something about MLS versus um, a European league, you're going to have the usual folks come out. And so like, you had the usual folks with, what were they saying? something about relegation. I knew that would happen. Oh, yeah. you know, big difference there. Like, obviously there's a difference there, but in any case, like, I feel like Pepe got over there. He's made his quick adjustment. He got in the first game. He doesn't have COVID. That's good. And <laughs> and now he, cause so many other people do. Yeah. And, and, you know, he should be able to start moving along now and making the adjustment. Yeah. And you also like, just to, just to add on to that point, I think the, the main difference between MLS and going to a club like Augsburg, like even, you know, FC Dallas was towards the bottom of the table, but at the very least, particularly when they're at home, they can at least play like their style of play, I thought offers much more than what. Augsburg did in this game, right? They were always trying to hit in transition. There was one moment where Pepe looked like he was in if if one of Augsburg's wingers just yeah. played the pass on time, but he didn't. Uh, and like those moments are fewer and far between. So I guess the question is, is do you think that in more adverse conditions is a better way to develop or even playing at a club like Dallas, but you at least get to express yourself, play in a better style. Like, like under Luchi Gonzalez, Dallas still played some decent stuff. And so is it better for a player to develop in worse circumstances because you are forced to adjust, you're forced to compete, you're forced to play in, like the the pressure of relegation is very real, but is that necessarily a good environment for a player to develop? I, I think it's like, it's one of those sink or swim things, but I don't think it's necessarily the best structure from him to operate within. However, if he succeeds as, for example, Daryl DK did at Barnsley last year, that is a credit to him because it's not the most perfect circumstances to go out there and score goals. Yeah, I, I think it's a good move. I'm, I'm hoping for the best for him, obviously, and we'll see how it shakes out in the weeks and months ahead. Staying on, in Europe, wild game in Italy, Juventus comes from behind, wins 4-3 at Roma, probably the game of the weekend. And whether it was Italy or Spain or even Germany, we've been I've been sort of complaining for weeks now that this the title races seem to be over. And we saw Bayern Munich lose and Dortmund win this weekend. So that got a little closer. We saw Real Madrid lose and and the gap get a little closer in Spain. 
And in Italy, that's the closest league. It's the only sort of title race that seems to be there right now. And in Milan, thinks or looks like they might be able to to make this a race potentially. And Juventus has a ways to go. They're in fifth place, but they're not out of it. And I do think that a win like this where a Jose Mourinho team is up 3-1 in like the 69th, 70th minute and loses 4-3, that could be a big moment for Juventus. Especially when Juventus also then subsequently had a man sent off at 4-3. They they scored three goals, I think, in like eight minutes, and then they're trying to establish their foothold in the game, and then I think it was Matias De Ligt got sent off. So Juventus... Coming with from the penalty behind. that, that right. was saved. Right, yes, right. It was a red card, then it was a penalty that was saved. So uh, hanging on to win that game, yeah. I mean, I think Juventus in some ways did themselves more damage than we can imagine just because they, beyond the fact that they you know won nine straight titles or whatever it was, had this feeling that no matter what you did against them, they were going to come back and win. They were going to, you know, if you think you beat them, they, they, would, they would claw out a point. They were inevitable, right? Juventus is one of those inevitable clubs in Italy. And the fact that they have had a couple of bad seasons now makes you think that they're not. And so I do think clubs probably don't respect them as much or don't or aren't scared of going behind or aren't scared of, you know, like of hanging on to their wins against Juventus because a lot of teams have beaten them. So I think the more that they can establish that reputation again of, hey, you might think you have us beaten, but in, in our DNA is a club that does not give up, a club that comes from behind. That Reestablishing that identity is really important. Whether they win their league or not, it's really important that they get back to being Juventus in some ways. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I also thought Weston McKinney had a pretty good game for Juve and a really important pass on the game-winning goal uh, that DeShilio ends up scoring. And so that's encouraging, especially when we, we had had some concerns about some of the top U.S. players in Europe not getting as much playing time or not playing very well when they did get on the field. I thought it was good. You know, Tyler Adams started a a nice Leipzig win uh, this week. So, you know, that's encouraging again to see. We'll see if Christian Pulisic becomes a guy who is sort of an expected starter for Chelsea's biggest games. He's not there right now. Yeah, I mean, you know, he he did start that Liverpool game, but we don't know if going forward with Lukaku back in the team, that's one less attacking position. If they persist with that 3-4-3, he can basically guarantee that Lukaku and Mason Mount are in one or two of those three positions, and then the competition for that third place is incredible. Hakim Ziyech does go off with, uh, I, I believe he's off with the Africa Cup of Nations, uh, and then you no, have... No, he's not. Actually, he's not with the team. Oh, that's that's he, right. He's, that's he's right. He, he fell out with the manager, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember reading about that. Okay, so you have him, you have Timo Werner, you have Kai Havertz, and Pulisic is in there as well. So Pulisic all of a sudden start finding minutes of wingback or whatever it is. Or, you know, Chelsea, I believe for the first time in a long time, uh, operated out of something like a back four this week, and at least when I watched them, you know, Hakim Ziyech was listed as a wingback, but he didn't really play the position like a wingback. He was incredibly far forward. So, like, they, they felt like they played 4-2-3-1 for the first time in a while. I don't think Thomas is going to go to that. So, uh, you know, Pulisic, again, is going to have to, you know, fight for minutes off the bench, play wingback, or play so well that he's the third of those three attacking positions. Yeah, so I, I, I do think Italy... We talked about this midweek. It's it's a fun league. And not only is there a Tyler race there, there's not a big gap between one and five at this point. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's fun to follow. 
Um, I guess Inter's got a game in hand now because their game got canceled on Thursday, so the quintuple header didn't end up happening after all. But, <laughs> um, but Inter, I still think, is the team to beat. But I, I, you know, I don't know if they're going to run away with it because Milan certainly doesn't appear to be allowing that to happen. And other teams are playing pretty well toward the top, too, there. Uh, the game that I wrote about, actually, for my, uh, my newsletter is the game of the week was... The Africa Cup of Nations opener, Cameroon 2, Burkina Faso 1. And I think Cameroon really sort of saved themselves here because they go down early uh, in the first half on on a very nice volley goal by Burkina Faso. They're playing at home, Cameroon is. Big moment, really festive. I, I kind of love the Africa Cup of Nations. And these first games are always a big sort of scene starter to get you excited for the coming weeks and two penalties that happen at the, toward the end of the first half give Cameroon a 2-1 lead going into halftime that ends up being the final score and I don't know if you, how much of this game you caught but like disappointing for Burkina Faso because these were bad penalties you know the first one you had the player was actually for Cameroon was running away from the goal in the penalty box and gets taken out by the the captain for Burkina Faso. And then Nuhu, MLSer baby, earns the penalty on the game-winning goal, and he was taken out in the penalty box after he delivered his pass. And so it just seemed like, I don't know, not just even like red or uh, penalties but like really foolish penalties by Burkina that like put them in that position yeah and I, I read that uh that knew who had a good game uh the the left back for mm-hmm. Cameroon who played uh at this year largely out of a back three uh for Seattle when he mostly mostly played as a fullback for them uh played in that back three and had a really good you know season of improvement and a good international tournament like wait who's that guy and you know hopefully like I, I imagine there'll be some scouts down there so yeah you know Cameroon who uh, I'm, I'm looking at their squad it's not quite as uh star-studded as it was, but there's still a couple of really good players. Carl Toko Akambi, for me, is a player who, I remember him, uh, I, I did a game that PSG played once against Angers, and uh, and he was playing for them, and he has since gone on to play for Lyon, and he's a, he's a decent player. So, yeah, as you mentioned before the tournament, there's always really good players to watch, but Andre Nana and goal uh, for, for Cameroon, and, and look, the, the the host nation scenes were amazing uh, from, from the jump, and that you're, you're right. That that opener, or any time the home nation plays at Africa Cup of Nations, it's a, tr- a a sight to behold. Yeah, Andre Onana. Yeah, we haven't seen him play much because he had this weird ban for like. And he he wrote a good piece about it in, in Players Tribune. He took something that was like a pregnancy medication for his partner, just totally by mistake. And I believe him. Sometimes you hear these like like track stars in particular sprinters get caught and they have some ludicrous excuse like the court of arbitration for sport said he was not significantly at fault here but he ends up and and they shortened it to a nine-month ban but you know he's been with Ajax for a long time he just signed to join Inter this summer he's a good goalkeeper and he was actually a little at fault on the Burkina Faso goal he was flying around and uh, a lot and uh didn't exactly keep things calm but uh, I, I do think he's going to have to play a little bit better as the the tournament goes on if Cameroon's going to have a chance to win this, which I think they do. Um, there's some good games coming up. Like on the the downer for me is as with the Euros, this is now a 2014 tournament, so 
the group stage, there's going to be third place teams that make it out of the group stage. And I think that kind of stinks. It takes a lot of the, you know, things at stake out of the group yeah. stage, but, but still, uh, there's a, uh, Morocco Ghana game on Monday that I think people should check out. Uh, a little disappointing. Senegal plays on Monday and they've got COVID positives for Edward Mendy uh, and Kali Dukulabali, so they won't be available yet. But still, I, I think Senegal's my favorite to win the tournament. But um, still, it'll be, it'll be nice to get into a rhythm of games at 8 a.m., Eastern, 11 a.m. and 2 p.m. for quite a while. If you want to have that going on in the background while you go through your day, feel free to do that. Um, So a big fan here of the Africa Cup of Nations. Uh, Let's talk a little bit in detail about the FA Cup. And you're going to do most, most of the talking here because I did not watch much of it at all. But there were a few results that stood out, right? So we had Arsenal losing to Nottingham Forest. Newcastle losing to Cambridge United, Burnley lost to Huddersfield, and Kidderminster Harriers of the sixth tier, a non-league team, beat Reading. Uh, probably the biggest gap uh, between two teams sort of in the the pyramid that uh, where the lower-ranked team won. Anything stand out to you? Yeah, so uh, you mentioned those games. I, I really enjoyed the, the ending of the Cambridge United game uh, because... There was an incredible save. Joe Linton in like the 96th minute uh, got a free header and the Cambridge keeper, Dimitar Mitov, had an absolutely stunning save to hang on to that one. And there was like 5,200 traveling fans that were there. And like one of the cool things you hear is how important these games are financially for some of these lower league clubs. So getting to the next round is massive. So for instance, like Shrewsbury Town played away at Liverpool they sold out a 55,000-seater stadium. Like, that's a huge part of their budget for the year, getting that away game. So anytime like, you get an away... Even, like, some teams would prefer to play away at Liverpool because you get to, you know, share in, in the gate receipts for the game. Although I did hear today... Do you know this, Grant? That even though they share the gate receipts, they also have to share the cost for VAR. So coming out of, out of their cut for the game is a $4,500 amount that goes towards VAR. I guess VAR costs $9,000 a game, and so that comes out of the cost of the game. So $4,500 that uh, Shrewsbury meant to collect from this game, they end up having to pay for VAR. So what do you think that money goes toward? Like paying the VAR ref? That or operating the tech, like flicking on the technology and paying the operators to be in the stadium? I don't know, but it costs $9,000 to operate VAR. I, I learned this today, and, and it comes out of the cost of Shrewsbury Town. Anyway, uh, that so, I mean, you know, good day out for, for the Shrewsbury fans, but you had Morecambe, who were a goal ahead at Tottenham as well. That, like, for a moment, you got to dream. Uh, I, actually, you know what? My favorite scene of the weekend, believe it or not, was in a 5-1 win for Chelsea over Chesterfield because Chesterfield scored their one goal, and they celebrated like they won the World Cup final. And it was 5 and it was 5-0 when they scored, and so they cut to the sideline the coach is celebrating the players are going nuts the fan like it was right in front of the away section the fans are going nuts and that's like one of those moments where it's like yeah we might have lost but we scored against the european champions and that's like like with those cool moments that you see in the fa cup yeah a team in the fourth of it like you don't see that in our american sports where like a single a baseball team doesn't get to play the yankees and even though they're losing 18 to 1 they got the one 
And that, like, that's the part that's so cool for them is even just getting the one for them is this huge victory. They go home. Oh man, we were there for the goal that's, that that Chesterfield scored to make it five one. I mean, I like that. I like that the FA Cup offers those opportunities, and I, I think this weekend gave us enough moments to say that was a good FA Cup weekend. Yeah, and I also like the fact that they moved away from the replay format because that means games went to extra time. And so you had like right. several games going to extra time. There was one game, it finished Barnsley 5, Barrow 4. That one went to extra time. That one was great. Uh, West Brom had a man sent off. Brighton won in extra time. So yeah, I mean, there was like games and drama on all day long. And then like you just have like these really great individual performances like Michael Elise for Crystal Palace against Millwall. Uh, they were 1-0 down and that one away at the Den. And Michael Elise for... 15 minutes became one of the greatest players in the world. So, yeah, you have these incredible individual performances. You have these upsets. I actually, I really enjoyed the FA Cup weekend. I'll I'll give it more credit than I thought I would have. Kidderminster Terriers was tremendous. Uh, I think it was at Borum Wood, where Jason Sudeikis was with the Borum Wood fans, and they were (laughs) lifting a plastic FA Cup trophy after they beat uh, uh, AFC Wimbledon away from home. So, yeah, there's there's just great, like, community moments, and I I got to experience a little bit more than I thought I would. Good. That suggests, by the way, that season three is about to start shooting for Ted Lasso. Is that accurate? I I would guess if he's over there, then, you know, we we can't be that far away. Uh, Coach Beard, actually, uh, Brendan Hunt posted that they were flying over. So, like, I I think season three is about to be shot. Nah, man, that's cool. Um, The one here's one thing I wish that ESPN did, though. Is there any reason they couldn't do like have somebody in a studio doing like a Galazzo show type thing where they're like rotating you around to what is happening on during FA Cup games? That would be fun. Although, I mean, the only thing is like. I think there was. A, I think in the ten o'clock window on Saturday, there was like twelve games going on at the same time. So like, I don't know if you even have like the raw studio capability to be able to do that. But yeah, I think I think like CBS doing that for all of their soccer properties has now gotten to a place where all right, I want to I want I want to see that for the FA. I think you're right. Like FA Cup third round would be a great time to unveil a Golasso show or a similar red zone style show where just setting me from goal to goal to goal because it would just be happening all the time. I was actually listening to a radio version of this. I was driving to my Sunday soccer game and on uh, Talk Sport, I, I have the app and so I fired it up and it's like, there's been a goal at the Bet365. Let's go to whoever and they just like tell you about it and like there's a guy who's doing play-by-play but he's not because he's just tossing it to other people giving you updates on other games. I like that. I like that yeah. a lot. Uh, one more thing I want to talk about here. Chris Armis, the American who is an assistant to Ralph Rangnick as of recently at Manchester United, we're starting to see some articles coming out saying that Man United players are not thrilled with Chris Armis um, and maybe don't have a lot of respect for him. Um, what should we make of that? Yeah, so I, I was reading an article this weekend uh, in in the Guardian where Jamie Jackson, who's their Manchester correspondent, uh, and and this was also referenced by Laurie Whitwell, who covers Manchester United for the Athletic. He also referenced Chris Armas specifically in a piece. And here's here's Jamie Jackson's section. It says here, other senior players having experienced Chris Armas's coaching are unimpressed by the former New York Red Bulls and Toronto FC manager appointed as his assistant by Ranić, whose thinking and decision making are con- consequently being questioned. And I've just noticed this on a couple of occasions where specifically Chris Armas' name is brought up. Now, look, 
He did not leave MLS with the best of reputations. Took over a Toronto FC team that finished second in the Supporters' Shield race in 2020 and had them rock bottom of the league and got fired after 14 games. I'm not here to defend Chris Armas' coaching record, um, but it's just one of those things where it struck me that specifically the American was being dug out as the assistant coach who is failing Manchester United and isn't good enough for Manchester United. And... Look, coaches come in from all over the world to manage in the Premier League, to manage in England. They presumably bring their own backroom staff and bring their own assistant coaches. And, you know, one of the first times you see an American get in there as an assistant at a really high-level club, his coaching is the one that it specifically dug out. It's not the manager's fault. It's Chris Armas's fault. And, like, and I, look, again, I'm not here to defend Chris Armas' record. It's very possible that he might not be of a standard to, ma- to manage or even assistant coach at this level. But it just strikes me as weird that the American, after Bob Bradley had a torrid time managing Swansea and having to, because he said away game once, that the whole freaking, I almost cursed there, the, 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 whole, the whole industrial media <laughs> complex of England had a meltdown because he said away or a road game or something like road that. <laughs> like, it, it's just... Like I, I yes, I have occasion. I am occasionally sensitive to this, where the Americans are singled out for whatever reason, and I, I really do think that this is the, that there's something behind this. Now again, Chris Armas does not make for a good martyr, but it just my antennas go off when the anti-Americanness starts in the UK press. You know what's wild to me though is I think all of these statements are true. One, that people in England have a th- have issues with Americans when it comes to soccer. I, I do believe that is true. Well, first off, you just said soccer, so you, you, two, you can start there. Two, that Americans are um, extremely um, overly sensitive about this topic. Mm-hmm. I also believe that to be true. Okay. Uh, I think there's this kind of inferiority complex that we have in our soccer culture here where we worry too much about what people in England think. And I also, I mean, like, look what happened with like when Bob Bradley was there, like they had this whole like television show or shtick, like, uh, what was it called? Uh, it was like Brad, Bad, Brad, Bra- Brad, Brad Bobbly. Bobbly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> then, that was on like, soccer was AM on, like, which is funny. The show is called soccer AM and they were, and yeah, they were digging out Bob Bradley for like, you know, being an American coach. And, and you're the expert on, on, you know, fancy lad type, uh, commentary, <laughs> but um, what what does dug out mean? Is that mean is that is that criticized? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, okay. Just wanted to make sure. Sorry. Um, but it is what it is. And I, with with Chris Armis, do I think that what he's doing is like more important than what Ralph Rangnick's doing? No, I don't. I and mean, he's an assistant coach there to do a specific thing. And uh, my guess is. I don't know how many of those Man United players have actually taken the time to like do research about who Chris Armas is. They probably know that he didn't play in Europe. Um, maybe they know he didn't play in a World Cup. I don't know if they're that aware of his record at the Red Bulls in Toronto. I, you know, I don't know if Cristiano Ronaldo is like sitting like Googling MLS standings, but um, I do know that like you know if you're a a coach walking into a locker room that you know, that's, and you're new, then there's going to probably be some skepticism. Is, is part of that maybe because Chris Armas is American? Maybe. Yeah. I, look, I, again, I, I'm probably being overly sensitive. I'm part of that overly sensitive culture, <laughs> but I just, I don't know, man. Like, 
you know, they're already writing autopsies of the Rolf Radnick era, which I think there's going to be one that it, it happens after he leaves that's going to really dig him out. I think the Manchester United culture has pretty clearly rejected him already, and he's he's oh, fighting. Wow. Like, you're, I, I, you're, you're talking definitive here. I don't know, because, like, when, when you start to read, like, long athletic pieces about what's wrong in Manchester United and the coach has been there for four games, I think... <laughs> And it's from everything I've read, there seems to be a lot of off the record. There's, you know, players leaking stuff. There's a bunch of players that want to leave. Like, a lot of the reporting is not good right now for the Ralph Ranyuk era. But, like, it's just, why does immediately the American get singled out? Like, I've never read anything about another assistant coach in the Premier League. For I've been following this league for more than 10 years. And it just it just raises alarms. And look, I might be overly sensitive, but I was annoyed by it. I really was. I really was. It's like, wow, of course, you dig out the American because he's not good enough to be coaching your big English institution. Like, and that might be wrong, but that's just how I feel. Like, that's how I feel. It's like, of course, you're going to pick him out. Yeah, no, I think there's something to that. We don't often hear about assistant coaches in the Premier League. You know, then again, it's Manchester United. So, like, I do I remember, the, like, Carlos Carroche and, you know, Renee Muhlenstein being written about when they mm -hmm. were the top assistant to Sir Alex Ferguson? Yeah, I do. Mm -hmm. But I don't even think Chris Armas is, like, the top assistant, is he? I don't think so. I don't think I mean, so. I Like, like whenever, like, like they, they, they cut to the... Uh, to the technical area where they're preparing the substitutions and like they, there's a guy with a binder that's showing them pictures. It's not Chris Armas who's showing them the binder. I think I think that the guy with the binder for me is the lead assistant. I don't know if that that might be purely anecdotal. It's an important job, the guy with the binder. But yeah, like Chris Armas, like I've seen him when they're making subs, he just sat on the bench. Like I don't think he's that important. You know, I tell you a funny Chris Armas story. Go on. Uh, I, I wrote a story about him for Sports Illustrated when he was a player. Uh, this was back in like 2000, maybe 2000. And he had a week where he played in a U.S. World Cup qualifier midweek against Costa Rica. And then he played the MLS Cup final that same weekend for Chicago. Uh, I think against Kansas City in D.C. And... I decided to follow him for my story for the magazine, which ended up being a bad call because I think the U.S. tied at home against Costa Rica, which is bad, and then Chicago lost the final, and so that wasn't great. <laughs> but after one of these games, I think I called him on the phone in his hotel room at like 3 a.m. after he'd played in it, and like I was needing to get some sort of quote, and I was on deadline, and Chris Armas is like the nicest guy in the world. And so he didn't even get angry at me. He was like, Grant, it's 3 a.m. <laughs> I, I, I still can't what even. You, like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, yeah, and, then, and then it hit me. I was like, oh, man, I've sort of lost track of, of everything here. <laughs> um, but yes, I, I do remember that. Nicest guy in the world. So I, I wish all the best for Chris Armas there. Maybe we can get him on the podcast at some point to talk about it. My guess is that won't be happening this next week or two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And one of the things that I read was like, apparently he's been coaching them how to recover the ball, but then not what to do at once you have recovered the ball. It's just like press, win the ball. And I guess I just move on from there. Like they're not coaching what happens next. But like, again, I have not read that kind of granular detail about assistant coaching ever, ever when, when following the Premier League. I just haven't. And it's just, it's just weird that it's when the American gets in there that we all of a sudden start breaking down the training sessions run by assistants. All right, my friend. You make sense. Good to talk to you as always, Chris Whittingham. Thanks, Grant. 
Now, here's my interview with Marissa Pillow. Our guest now is a regular on TV coverage of the NWSL and the Philadelphia Union. Marissa Pilla is a Philadelphia-based broadcaster who you can find on Twitter at Pilla underscore talk. Marissa, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming on the show. Great to see you too, Grant. Thanks for having me. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about for, I think, the year ahead in things that you cover. But before we get going, I have to tell you, a mutual friend of ours who lives in Philadelphia told me she's kind of disappointed that you recently moved out of the city and into the suburbs. She wasn't upset, actually. She was just having fun. But is that accurate? It is accurate. And it's worse that she's disappointed, like if she was mad. You know that that saying, it's like, I'm not mad, I'm disappointed. Like, oh, that hurts even more. Um, I just want whoever is curious to know, I did move out of Philadelphia. You can take the girl out of Philadelphia. You can't take the Philadelphia out of the girl. So no need to worry on that end. Good. Good to hear. So you do several different soccer things. And I can still remember not long ago when very few people kind of came out of college and and got into the, the media business wanting to do soccer. Did you want to do soccer specifically when you came out of college? And and what's your story with that? Yeah, I mean, when I came out of college, I just wanted to work. I really didn't care who hired me as long as somebody did. And I Mm -hmm. kind of tell this story often that I graduated school and I applied to over 200 on-camera jobs. I didn't get a single one. Um, I did hear back from Fargo, North Dakota. They didn't want me, but at least they let me know. (laughs) Um, So they had the kind to be like, hey, um, we saw your reel. We hate it. Thanks again. And so I was, you know, really discouraged. You you graduate, you think you're going to, you think you know everything. You think you're going to, you know, hit the ground running and make all this great work. And that didn't really happen for me. So I actually started off as a production assistant, um, moved into digital uh, producing for a little bit, social media reporting. And I always say I annoyed the right people enough times to let them (laughs) put me on air um, covering college basketball, college football. I did a little NBA coverage in the beginning of my career, and I eventually kind of found my way back to soccer. Um, And I say back because I grew up in a very soccer-focused household. My dad um, was an Italian immigrant, um, so I'm first-generation Italian on my dad's side, and he just lived and breathed soccer. So, of course, we had to. So grew up playing, grew up watching. um, And then when he passed away, I kind of saw myself pulling away from soccer a little bit, subconsciously even. Um, I was able to see that kind of later on as an adult. So I kind of found my way back to soccer, found my way back to that love. And it's been a wild ride ever since. And I've really been enjoying it. Nice. Well, I enjoyed the work that you do. Um, What are all the different things you're doing these days in soccer? Yeah, mainly, as you said, a lot of coverage on the NWSL, which I love. I think it's an incredible league. It it definitely has had its highs and lows, um, but I think it's important that uh, we shed light on the lows and also highlight the highs and understand that in perspective of all the other professional leagues in this country that we're used to watching, it's only 10 years old. And to see it turning into what these players deserve it to be is something really exciting to me and kind of gives me a little bit of hope. So I've been covering the league for, I think this is going to be my fourth year. I've been doing the drafts. Um, I do cover MLS uh, for Fox as well as the Philadelphia Union. So still holding true with the, with the Philly crowd there. (laughs) Nice. Um, 
And one of the more recent things that you did was a very long broadcast for Paramount Plus on the NWSL draft and expansion draft. How many hours did all that stuff end up being and how did you prepare for all of it? It's an extremely long day. And I try to tell people who might be new to the draft that it feels like you're thrown into a casino because you have no concept of time. There's no outdoor lights. Like you go in, the sun's up, you leave, the sun's down. You're like, oh my God, what happened to me during this (laughs) weird span of time that I've been talking? And you always feel like by the end of it, you don't know how you're creating any more words. You don't know how words are coming out of your mouth. It's a long day, um, especially the college draft, uh, because there's four rounds, teams have timeouts, and they often take them, much to my dismay. And it's just prolonged. I think, I know last year, uh, the 2021 draft, uh, our first round took two hours. And I just kept saying this year, I'm like, as long as this first round doesn't take two hours, we're on pace to be better than last year. <laughs> and I think we we're about like an hour and a half. So it was, okay. it was much better, but it is, it's a very, very long day. It's a good thing that I don't work that because I think if somebody called a timeout, I would get angry like on the air and I would just say, time out. What do you, you can't do that. Yeah. It's like, Um, oh my gosh. (laughs) But it's an impressive thing um, to be able to be on the air that many hours and, and do all of that. Um, When I look at the NWSL season ahead, one of the biggest stories looks like, you know, the new teams, Angel City and San Diego out in California both in terms of the attention they're bringing, as well as just how good they might be on the field now that we see the players that they're going to have. What stands out to you the most about these two teams right now? I think a lot of it has to do with how much culture is a part of how they're building their teams. Mm -hmm. And it feels very deliberate in how they're building expansion teams, which is something very refreshing and and kind of... um, security wise for me a little bit because I've seen other expansion teams come in the league and be really excited about being in league, um, but not talk and hit certain talking points that I've heard uh, Angel City and San Diego talk about how they want to be not just creating a good culture in their own locker room, but in the community and be representative of the communities that they play for, which I think is huge and often overlooked in sports. And that's why it's so incredible that in NWSL, there's still opportunities to build a club. You can build something from the ground up and create that culture and make sure that it's the right kind of roots you're putting down. And as you said, like the big names that they're bringing in, it's just, it's wild. Like you look at these rosters for both teams and it, it's just national team players and really exciting players that they picked up through different trades. And of course, I mean, they're really sought after markets. So who doesn't want to play in California? So of course that's going to kind of just bring up the competition level a whole bunch. And I know it's hard being an expansion team. Oftentimes expansion teams aren't super successful, but with kind of who these players are on these teams, I think we could see that bar being raised a little bit in terms of what to expect out of expansion sides. And then for whoever wants to come in next into the league, that bar is going to be a little bit higher to meet knowing that, well, Angel City did it, San Diego did it. So you kind of have to meet that level too. One person who really intrigues me is Jill Ellis. And she's running the San Diego team. She's not coaching it. The coach of that team is the former Man United coach, Casey Stoney. But how public of a face do you think Jill Ellis is going to be 
in now that she's in this role because of what she's accomplished over the years as the two-time World Cup winning coach of the U.S. women, like she's a big name. Do you think she's going to be seen publicly a lot this year? I think so, just because just from my experience with the draft, she was in the war room. She was very much um, involved in that. We talked to her um, after certain draft picks, after the expansion draft, we were able to grab her for a quick interview. And we've all were kind of saying it on draft day, she's showing a lot more personality than we've ever seen her show, which I think is really interesting because I think maybe in this role as a, as a non-coach, but a front-facing person, she can kind of let her personality shine a little bit more and be maybe a little more laid back in a certain way. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how all of that knowledge and experience she has can kind of be put to use, not in a um, implementation of a coach. And I think that's what's going to be very, very intriguing. But I think she's going to be super involved. I mean, it's Jill Ellis. I don't think she's going to, you know, kick her feet up and be like, (laughs) Have fun, everyone. <laughs> it kind of plays into a theory I have, though, because I feel like, and I feel this way about Bob Bradley when he was the U.S. men's national team coach. I think Jill Ellis, as you're saying, might fit this as well. I think there's so much pressure involved with being the senior national team coach of the U.S. men or women that they're different when they're not in that position anymore. Because I would say that both Bob Bradley and Jill Ellis seem more approachable maybe and less, and less tightly wound <laughs> that they're no longer the U.S. national team coaches. For sure. It's such a pedestal, especially the women's side. Um, they're put everybody on that team from players to, you know, even just the athletic trainers, everyone is put on a pedestal. And every national team player I've ever talked to said it's just this expected excellence and it's unreal how much that excellence is expected. So to have that expected excellence all the time, you have to wonder how much does that affect how you carry yourself, how on guard you might feel in front of media who you don't know, who are trying to get information from you to do their own job. So I think you're right. I think that role, while it's so coveted and it's so it's, it's an incredible role to have, to be, especially on the women's side, to coach the best in the world, it comes with different things. Maybe you have to keep your guard up a little. And I think we're seeing Jill Ellis's guard in sunny San Diego start to come down a bit. <laughs> now, the Washington Spirit ended up making a late season run and winning the league title last year. And I would argue that the best player on the field in the final was 19-year-old Trinity Rodman. And I'm wondering how much is she improving almost like in real time, in your opinion? And how much better could she be even this season. I think she's just been so impressive because we often talk about in drafts, um, one, can the player physically keep up with making the transition from college to pros? She didn't even play in college. So when she was getting drafted, we're like, this is a girl, really a girl, because, you know, she's not, she's not a college-aged woman yet. This is a, a young woman who didn't play any minutes in college, and she's making this huge, gigantic leap to the professional level. That's very physical. It's so transitional. It's so fast. Can she physically keep up? And then you also have to think, she's so young, too. She's still a teenager. What's the mental effects of this? Do they have the resources in place to make sure that she feels mentally supported? And obviously, they did, and she did, because she was just so phenomenal and so 
confident. And that's what stood out to me is her confidence on the ball to try things. And you often hear that from coaches that younger players almost have this amazing ability just to kind of block out how big the situation around them might be because they're like, oh, let's just go have fun. Like they don't have that pressure almost because they're so young. And I think that's amazing and something I wish I could kind of tap back into. Um, But she was just lights out at that final and was able to compose herself really well because they really, um, they had to come back in that game. They weren't always in in control of that game. And um, that was kind of very representative of how Washington was the entire season. They had come back and won more games from a, from a deficit than any other team in the league. And for them to do it once again for a final time at the championship game, I think just kind of was a perfect ending to their season. So when you look at the league heading into this season, which teams do you think should be among the favorites to win it? I think you have to obviously go with Washington. You know, you can't sleep on the reigning champ. I think the rain made such a great run at the end of the year. They finally kind of got their pieces back in place and Laura Harvey like reignited that team. And it finally felt like things were fitting where it was before you were like, what's going on here? There's so much talent with the rain. And plus they're playing back at Lumen Field. I think that's Mm going to just add another level. Um, I think, let me think about it. I Gotham is very interesting too with who they're bringing in. Mm-hmm. Got Christy Mewis now, Ashlyn and Allie, and they already had such a talented team as well. They made a nice run in the playoffs. Chicago is interesting just because it's a whole new phase for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the longest tenured coach in the league was Rory Dames, and, and he resigned. Uh, so now they're kind of starting fresh. They're telling us it's not a, a rebuild, it's a restart. Like, whatever you want to call it, it's something new. <laughs> so, um, But I think those are kind of the interesting teams to me, at least. Um, but the, the great thing about NWSL, too, is that a team can make a change so quickly and all of a sudden go on a run. And that's what I appreciate about this league is that um, I'm not the only one to say, but it's so competitive where there's not a clear runaway. You know, Portland's always going to be good. I can't believe I didn't mention Portland. I hope they don't kill me, but they're always going to be good. So it's never that clear runaway favorite, which I think makes the league very interesting, you know, to watch and see who can peak at the right times, but also who uses different Um, tactics to make sure they get the most out of their players because you don't necessarily need the biggest names you just all need to work together i should point out by the way and we'll see how things develop here but one thing the new real salt lake owner said this week is that they do plan to bring the utah royals back uh into the league so um and they at least indicated sooner rather than later so i almost wonder if for 2023 uh, that could be a real possibility. So that's exciting because they had a nice fan base out there that I feel good for today, um, seeing that their their team is coming back. Another new team, we've seen this new team in Kansas City make a big splash with infrastructure with, I guess, $85 million now being committed toward a new practice facility and a new stadium total. You know, it's going to be in downtown Kansas City on the river, uh, we saw Sam Mewis join the Kansas City Current. They were at the bottom of the league last season on the field, but how much better do you think Kansas City will be this season once they get going? I think a lot of people are going to be surprised at how much better they're going to be, not just because you add probably one of, if not the best you know, midfielder in the world right now in Sam Mewis, who's so excited to be there. I, I was able to speak with her before 
the expansion draft. And she said, She's just so um, motivated and inspired by the ownership there and knowing that they're putting so much resources into making this a world-class facility. And she couldn't stop talking about how much she's bragging about the first ever NWSL-specific stadium. So that really does make a difference for players, especially when you have markets like L.A. and, you know, Portland who are really, you know, eye-catching. You need something to bring you into a Kansas City. I think they're going to be really good. Um, It's going to be interesting to see who they bring in as a coach and and all that um, because there's a lot of things to build, but they started making a lot of tweaks to midseason, really starting to get their their footing a little bit because when you think about what happened to them last year, I think they had like something crazy, like 28 days from the time that the franchise was announced to draft. So it takes me like much longer than that to prepare for the draft, just to report on it, let alone build a, a team through a draft. So they really were just kind of doing the best they could with the confines they had. Um, but I think it's a great city. They have a really good base of a roster, and I wouldn't be surprised either if they're going to make some more moves. Are there any established U.S. women's national team stars who you think have some pressure on them to perform in the NWSL this season? I like that you used established because it's tough. It's so hard to like think of where, you know, the the cracks, if you will, could be in that roster because we saw at the Olympics, like they obviously didn't perform the way any of us expected them to. Um, but we, we were all having a conversation of like, but who's at home that you would want to bring in? And we couldn't really think of anyone that was sitting at home that were like, ah, oh, I just wish they were here. Mm-hmm. So I think it's interesting. I can't think of any established players, but some of the younger players that I think are on the verge of really breaking through. Obviously, Sophia Smith. I, it's going to be interesting to see how Jalen Howell adjusts to the professional league. She's already made a name for herself on the national league. So if she can kind of prove that she can keep up with the Pacey style NWSL, I think that's even going to get more looks for her. There's a lot of different younger strikers, like a Morgan Weaver, who I think is really talented, um, just needs to show, I think, a little more consistency in areas that could kind of get her off that bubble and into the camp a little bit more. Establishment-wise, I don't know. I, it's tough because it's also like I'm fans of them, so I'm like, they're all perfect. Don't worry about them. <laughs> but it, as a, I have to put on my journalistic hat and and think, but yeah, I think, I mean, I feel, I know by the time, you know, the World Cup rolls around in 2023, that team's going to look completely different. And I think we all have to accept that. The first part is accepting and understanding that there's change coming. Um, But I don't know about this year in particular. I mean, when you look at the U.S. women's national team, the big event this year is in July, uh, the tournament that's going to serve as qualifying for both the World Cup and the 24 Olympics, which is a new thing. Um, I just wrote a big story on Katerina Macario and her chances for a bigger role on the national team this year. Like, how much change are you expecting this year? I know you just alluded to it, but I mean, I guess I'm very keen... I'm, yeah, I, I just, as, as I was writing my Macario story, I was like, if the choice is Alex Morgan or Macario at center forward, is that a choice that might actually get made? Like, should we assume, so we, should we just assume that Alex Morgan would start? That's the thing. And it's, it's so hard because you can't deny that Alex Morgan had a good NWSL season last year. She had probably her best NWSL season. She played pretty well in the Olympics too. And also it's Alex Morgan. Like 
when you say it, you're like, am I really going to be the crazy person that doesn't start Alex Morgan? But at a certain point, the page has to be turned. The question is, when do you turn that page and who's ready to come with you still? Like, obviously, we know Carly Lloyd hung up her hung up her cleats this year. And I think she could have physically still played. But is she still going to be that difference maker? And there are players like that on that team. And I think what's going to be interesting to me, too, is the defense a little bit, too. Um, There are some really young, like, I love Midge Purse. I think she's such a great player. She's so dynamic that, not even that she's so just controlled on the ball, she's really smart on the ball. And I think that could be somebody on the defense that kind of sparks something a little different and gives Vlaco an opportunity. And I think almost, too, that Vlaco now kind of has that time where he can actually assess this roster because... COVID year threw everybody off a loop and for him to put a Olympic roster together was hard because they couldn't play a lot of people. He couldn't see a lot of different players. So he went with who I think everybody would have went with on that roster. But yeah, come July, even the She Believes Cup, I think we're going to see some different names really start to get some important minutes um, and kind of get them tested a little bit. We should have a pool going. We should have like a, a bracket. You ever do that with like The Bachelor or something? Who you think is going to make it? Yes. Nice. I like it. <laughs> um, and I, I now remember, you. so you were at the Olympics. You were in Japan for that tournament for NBC. What was that experience like for you? Like just from a work perspective, how you experience things? Work-wise, um, it was a lot of work. Um, quick turnarounds. The players talked about it a lot. So I don't know how they physically were able to do those turnarounds because mentally it's exhausting for us. You know, it's every couple of days, a new game. You completely have to like wash out what you just learned, learn something completely new. And that went on for three weeks. Um, So it was, it was a lot of work, but I mean, you're here in this business. You enjoy the work. You kind of nerd out on the prep a little bit. Um, Mm -hmm. At least I do. So work-wise, it was a lot, but it was just an incredible experience to be part of something so global Um, And I always grew up such a huge fan of the Olympics, watching all the time when I was little. And to be part of it, to be part of that crew with NBC, it was so humbling. And on top of that, I'm working with Arlo White and Julie Foudy. And I had Julie Foudy's poster on my wall. You know, I'm trying not to freak out and like, you know, fangirl all the time because they're both so amazing. Um, But it was an incredible experience. And we did get to see the city a good amount um safely um so we got to see a good amount of the the culture and everything and um it was just so beautiful and it was it was just incredible it really really was i took away a lot of positive things from that trip nice um you also have been covering the philadelphia union for a while now huge disappointment to have so many covid cases when the team had gotten one step from the mls final um What are you thinking right now about the season ahead for the Union? I think um, I'm excited for it. I'm very much looking forward to it because each year I've been with the Union, they've gotten substantially better each and every season. They've made huge marks. First, it was, oh, they made their first ever, they qualified for the playoffs. Okay, that was like baseline. And then it kept building. First ever home playoff game. Then they, a couple years, uh, last year, they won the Supporter Shield, you know? And this year, it really felt like, Things are coming together. Okay, they didn't win the Shield, but, you know, at the end of the day, what does that mean? Nothing. You still got to win your games. So to to see them kind of peaking at that time and then all of those COVID cases, it was. It was just heart-wrenching to see 
that they had to put out, not that those guys aren't the best, but they're not their top choices. Everybody knows that. And I could only imagine what was going through Alejandro Bedoya's mind watching that game from home, just so fired up. But I think this year, I think this year it's, it, I want to, I, for sure, I think they're going to be a playoff team. I think that has to be just expected of this team by now for who they've been the last couple of years. I know Philly fans were always very cautiously optimistic. We always love to be a little bit of a pessimist. and um, But this team has shown that they're capable of being a playoff team, so then go be a playoff team. And I think that's kind of what Jim Curtin instills in as well. It's like baseline, that's what it is. It's playoffs, we're getting in. So that's my at least baseline expectation. Um, I'd love to see them get back to a chance where they can get into the Eastern Conference Final. I think they deserve it. We've had Jim Curtin on the podcast before. Really good guy. And obviously oh, doing he's the very best. well. Like I was wondering, is he like that on a, I think he is on, on a daily basis when you're covering him? Yeah. <laughs> oh, he's he's just so great. I, when I lived in the city, which is hard to say past tense now, um, I'd see him in the neighborhood a lot and he'd be like running with his kids and his dog. And he really is the person that you think he is um, when you meet him and that you hope he is when you see him. He's just a really great guy. Um, he cares about his players. He he gets it, as Philly people like to say. Like, we all, you know, you get it. Um, and he's just, I think he's just really super passionate about what he does. And that comes through. Also, he has a great sneaker collection. So I think we can all <laughs> get behind that. Yeah. Do you think, by the way, that Philadelphia could get an NWSL team at some point? I mean, if it was up to me, yes, I'd green light that. Um, I think... I think it's certainly a viable market because not only is it a big market, it's got a great soccer culture attached to it. Um, the Philadelphia Union fans are super, super passionate. Um, they're, they've been coming out very strong over the last few years. And I know Philly can be tough because it's very much a NFL, like MLB type city, but in that soccer culture hub of the city, it's super strong. And I know... I used to grow up going to Philadelphia Charge games, so there was always that interest there. You know, I still have my visor. Um, it's, it's somewhere in storage. But, um, yeah, I think I think the, the interest is there in terms of an audience. Obviously, the infrastructure is there. Not only do you have the Union Stadium, which is a fantastic facility, you have, if you want to be in the city, there's always the link that always sells out when the national team comes through. Um, I know people in the city would love to see it. I personally would love to see it. So I'm hopeful that I, I've heard rumblings. So I'm hoping they turn into something more concrete. So I wanted to ask you, you do a lot of different things. You do sideline reporting, you do studio shows, you do interviews. You've done a little bit of play-by-play that I've heard. <laughs> Is Would you like to do more of that? Are there other things you would be interested in doing? I really love, I, I mean, I love all of it. I still can't believe this is my job some days where like I'm at a stadium, like, oh my gosh, they're paying me to be here. Um, that's incredible. So I love all of it, but I really do love, um, I love the hosting aspect and I really love the interviewing. I love conversations and really digging into different topics with people. I think that's what's most fascinating is oftentimes we look at these athletes as just their production value. What, what have you done for me lately sort of thing, like on the field. And there's people behind those jerseys and that's what's so interesting to me and I that's why I'm a huge fan of yours not to kiss up but you you tell those stories and that's what I love to do as well like I love to know why and that's what especially I have friends and family members who aren't 
big soccer fans, it, it does break my heart a bit, but I try to tell them something intrinsic about these players. So then you have somebody to root for or why you should root for this club. And when you kind of get them involved in, in that way and kind of pull on their heartstrings a bit, then you have a fan. And that's what makes us, I think, soccer fans so passionate is that there's so much emotion behind being around any fan, but especially soccer. There's already so much passion in that sport. So I really love kind of bringing out that passion and just talking to like-minded people. That's kind of, you know, what I hope I can continue to do. We're wrapping up here with Marissa Pillar. Really appreciate you taking this much time. I guess just to wrap up, I'd I'd like to ask you, do you have any advice for, for journalism students who might be listening to this who want to do what you do? Yeah, I think, I think the most important thing is to know that there's no one set path to get to where I am, to where you are, to where anyone else has been. We've all taken much different routes. And I think that's good and bad because sometimes, especially when I graduated college, I just wanted somebody to tell me, do this and you'll get a, a job. And I tried and I didn't get the job. So, so I think it's important just to know everyone's path is going to look different. Success is never linear. You know, you think you're just going to shoot off the charts and this job's going to lead to the next. And, and sometimes that great job doesn't lead to anything, but at least you got that job and you learned something from it. Um, and I think it's just really important to always be enjoying what you're doing. This job is such a privilege to have, and it's so incredible that we get to do it. There's so many people who want to be doing what we're doing, and the fact that we get to do it is is incredible. I'm so thankful for that. And if it ever gets to a point where you're not enjoying it, then you know, okay, something's wrong. Let me reevaluate. But even in the struggles, even when I wasn't getting jobs and I was working for maybe $50 a game and my gas cost me 40 so I net it $10, I was still enjoying it. So that's how I knew to keep going. And I think too, that's important just to know, like, if you're still loving it, if there's, if there's nothing else you would rather do with your time, continue to pursue. Marissa Pellet is a regular on TV coverage of the NWSL and the Philadelphia Union. Marissa, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Marissa Pilla as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time.